Hello all, welcome back once again to another Spliced In Later. It's good to be back. I don't know if anyone will have noticed, but it has been a bit since my last episode. Took a week off. Not because I had anything specific to do, but I was just on holidays, having a break. Taking in the world outside my house, and it was nice. I thought about possibly throwing up a little episode during the time I was off, but I also thought, nah, that was a good enough answer. I think. No, not really. I had planned what I wanted to do last week, but thinking about it, it's a big episode. It's one I'm very excited to do. It's one that I think will run a bit long, as most of these do, and one that I'm kind of excited to really delve into. Not something that I can find a spare 20 minutes and just quickly fire off and put up there for everyone to see. I don't want to make anything subpar either. As much as I'm not a technical prowess, I don't want to just make something for the sake of it. I want to actually care about what I'm doing. Otherwise, what's the point, really? To celebrate coming back after the week off, we are diving right into our special episode today, one I'm really excited to do, which is going back once again for our top 10s of the year. And what are we up to? We're up to 2015. So we'll be discussing Spliced In Later's top 10 movies of 2015. I'm very excited to do this one because unlike previous countdowns for 16, 17, 18, 19, this list is actually quite unique. It is not dominated by superhero movies, Marvel movies, sequels and prequels. More effect, most of this list is original movies, original ideas, original stories from a variety of sources. It's actually a very solid list and it was very hard for me to make. 2015, I don't know why. Apparently, that's the year I decided to see all sorts of movies from everywhere at any given time. So... The list I had to decipher for of all the movies I've seen in 2015 was ginormous. And then to zero in on which ones were the best? Extremely difficult. My top four for this one are very interchangeable. They were swapping constantly. And I think I finally decided what they are going to be. But I know even as I record it to you, there'll probably be some inner turmoil and conflict. So once I record it and set it up there, it's official. And I can never change my mind again. No, not really. I'm sure after I record this tomorrow, I'll watch another movie that came out in 2015, which will completely shake up the status quo of the list. But for now, it's a very interesting list. It's something which should surprise a lot of my continuous listeners who will assume that when I get to number one, I'm just going to say Captain America or Avengers or whatever Marvel movie came out this year. You're in for a treat. You're in for a surprise. So we're going to dive right into it. But first, a few parameters right at the start. Once again, this is Spliced In Later's personal biased list these are movies that i think are great they're not necessarily award-winning movies they're not necessarily the best movies that the whole world as a consensus believes in if you listen to this and you disagree with my list that's totally fine in response make your own list let me know come up with what you think the best movies are never be upset with anything that anyone else ever says if they don't share the same opinion as you because we're all different people we're all going to have different lists all right we've got that out of the way Let's get right into it. 2015 was a great year. Let's see what Spliced In Later's top 10 movies were. Coming in at number 10, we have Star Wars The Force Awakens. Now, there was a time way back in 2015 where Star Wars The Force Awakens would have been at the very top of this list. Number one, number two, number three. It would have been held in much more high esteem than it is these days. And that unfortunately is a lot more of my issue because of where Star Wars has ended up 
since The Force Awakens, specifically with Episodes 8, The Last Jedi, and Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, generally by believed by me to not be great films. We won't get into a big Star Wars discussion. I've already done that in the past in old episodes. But suffice it to say, everything that was set up in The Force Awakens has not gone the way I had hoped it would, the way I wanted it to, which unfortunately, knowing that, going back to watch this movie, knowing how it all ended up after this film, does affect your overall enjoyment of the film. However, it needs to be said that when this movie officially came out in 2015, and no other Star Wars movies had come out after this yet, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I had a great time with it. If you're unfamiliar with Star Wars, The Force Awakens, it's the first in the new trilogy, sequel trilogy that Star Wars have done since Disney acquired it. It was a launch of a brand new story involving the characters of Rey, played by Daisy Ridley, and Finn, John Boyega, who meet each other during the events of this movie. It's set sometime after Star Wars has ended. Peace is not happening in the galaxy. The First Order, remnants of the Empire that was destroyed back in the old movies, is resurfaced and attempting to regain its hold in the galaxy, led by a mysterious individual called Kylo Ren, who we don't know who he is, but he's violent, he's angry, he's got a red lightsaber that's just bursting with anger from all sides. Rey is just this scavenger living, living on this unknown planet called Jakku, Finn is a stormtrooper that's conflicted with what he's doing. For a series of events, they end up running into each other. They've got to get this droid BB-8 from point A to point B, where, of course, they run into old favorites, Han Solo and Chewbacca and Princess Leia. The mystery of Luke Skywalker and what's happened to him is, is hanging in the background there. And essentially, that's it. But boy, is it a fun, entertaining film. It's been said many times that it is just a redo of the original Star Wars in terms of plot. And that is essentially true, but there is enough change in here to make it also its own original thing and it also takes advantage of the established lore of our original characters that it's able to build something more with those people. I remember when Star Wars was coming out, there was a big excitement for it over the whole of 2015. Trailers were dropping, people were excited. The movie was exciting. It was fun. It was full of action. All of the action that made Star Wars great and none of the baggage, which unfortunately I think was hanging over the head of the prequel films that came out before. It really didn't worry about remembering who Darth Vader was and the Empire and the Republic and the Jedi and making sure it is heading towards a direction that everybody knows. It took the fun and excitement of Star Wars, which is that just space adventure, a space journey, a space opera, and just restamping it with new characters for a new age. I thought the characters were really great. I really loved Ray and Finn, played by Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, they were very delightful together. There was a lot of comedy in this film, a lot more comedy, which I think is relevant to the age that we're living in than we not normally have got in Star Wars films, especially the prequels. There's a lovely little scene where Finn and BB-8 are giving each other thumbs up, and it makes me laugh every time. The action's great, the spectacle looks good. The one thing that has benefited Star Wars is the jump forward in CGI that has graced us ever since the first original Star Wars came out in 1977. It all looks amazingly real. The music by John Williams really gets you back into the mood. The mystery as well. At a time before the future Star Wars films came out and this movie was just setting up plot points which we thought were going to be explained and reasoned 
when we got into future episodes. It was very intriguing. Who was Kylo Ren? Why was he doing the things that he was doing? What made him just as scary, if not scarier, than Darth Vader? What's the First Order? Who is Supreme Leader Snoke that's leading everybody from the shadows? Why is there a giant silver stormtrooper called Captain Phasma? What's her story? What is the world like since the Empire fell? Who is the Resistance? Who is the First Order? It was all exciting and interesting and intriguing. And it still didn't take away from the actual enjoyment of the movie. All these plot points that were getting set up for future movies don't detract away from the simple story of there's a thing, the First Order has it, the Resistance wants to destroy it, Ray and Finn and their friends are the only ones who have the key to do what needs to be done. Kylo Ren wants to stop him. I loved the movie when I saw it. I think I watched it another five times in the cinemas while it was running, which is a bit obsessive, but I was just very pleased with the movie itself. I really enjoyed it. I love Star Wars. I've loved Star Wars since I was young, so I was really happy that there were going to be more Star Wars stuff in the future, and the people that I was going to see this movie with over and over again also loved Star Wars. It was just a great time at the movie theater. Now, as I said... Because of how I feel about the future episodes, it has taken my overall love of this movie down a peg because it just also makes me a little sad that a lot of what gets you excited for this film is wasted in future films. However, it would also be an unfair justice to take this movie and say, you're not in my top 10 because I don't like other movies that came on later. Force Awakens is a great Star Wars film. It's a great fun adventure film. For me, who loves this stuff obsessively, it was everything I wanted it to be and more. So while it's not as high on this list as it used to be, it doesn't deserve to not be on this list. And that's why Star Wars The Force Awakens gets its prime spot at number 10. Moving on to number 9, I've mentioned this film quite a few times on these podcasts, especially in other countdowns. It is the Pixar movie Inside Out. Inside Out was on my top 10 Pixar movies. Inside Out is a great Pixar movie. It's a great animated film in general for many different reasons. I know I've told you the Inside Out plot beforehand, but I'll just give you a quick recap if this is the first episode you're listening to. Inside Out is a Pixar film that just basically tells the story of a girl's emotions living inside her head and the emotions and her brain and the way her feelings work is given a, a real feel, a corporate feel, a magical feel, however you want to describe it. Five main emotions are running her decisions, her brain, essentially. Joy is their leader. She's the one who's really dominated how this girl has enjoyed her life as she's going along. And then you've also got Sadness, who's there, but no one really pays too much attention to her because she's a bummer. She's a letdown. No one really wants her in the driver's seat because she makes Riley, the little girl that everybody's uh, controlling, feel bad. But of course, there's an event Riley has to move to a different place with her family and it's a great reflection for people watching this film who are either younger who are entering into puberty or going through change and also for older people who remember what it was like to go through puberty and change and and deal with these emotions because it's different for everyone no kid goes through emotional change the exact same way everyone has a different perspective and what's great about Pixar and what Pixar does really well when it sets its mind to it, is it has an incredible imagination on how to convey stories of this serious nature in a light, fun-hearted way that kids can just watch and go, that was fun, I really liked that these cartoon characters did this thing. But older people can go along and go, oh man, this is, this is a really serious plot. This is some serious themes that's going on here. There's a 
driving point of the film that drives joy and sadness away from the brain and takes them on a journey through all of Riley's personality, the things that define her to middling defect of whether it's good or bad. They cause a lot of damage on their adventure. But of course, in a general Pixar journey film, they start to learn a bit more about each other. They start to learn that it's okay to feel sad sometimes. You don't have to be happy 100% of the time. Sometimes people need to feel sad or angry or jealous. It's part of being a human being. No one can be happy 100% of the time. And it's learning that information as they go along, which makes for a really heartfelt story that is full of emotion. And for anyone who watches this film and feels absolutely nothing, either you're lying or you're a psychopath, one or the other. I've watched this film many times now, and I know the point in this film which drives the most emotion for me, featuring an imaginary character called Bing Bong, and I know it's coming, and it shouldn't affect me as much as it does every time I watch it, but it does every single time. And even outside the brain, as the emotions are going on their adventures and journey and whatever, you see this girl, Riley, suffering the effects of this crazy madness that's happening inside her brain. And you feel for her as a character as well. And you feel for her, her relationship with her mother and father, the fact that she's living in a new town. She's had to leave all her friends behind. There's a lot in here for just a a 91-minute film. Inside Out really shows that just to be an animated kids' film does not mean that it's not a great movie, period. I think it's a shame that a lot of Oscar films seem to gloss over animated films to a point where they've given them their own category. So all the animated films are dumped into that bit rather than the Best Picture nominations. As I said, if you want to hear more about my Pixar love, go to listen to my Top 10 Pixar countdown. It's a great little countdown. Inside Out gets a lot of love in there, as do a lot of Pixar films. But with all the films in 2015, Inside Out absolutely deserves to be on this list at number nine. Coming in at number eight, we've got a great, if hard-to-watch film. It's a movie called Spotlight. Spotlight, if you're unfamiliar with it, which might be the case, it definitely did well at the Academy Awards. It won Best Film of 2015 in a surprising, shocking upset. I think people were expecting other films to win, and Spotlight really surprised everybody. It's not for everybody, but it's definitely a great film about a very serious concept. Case in point, Spotlight tells the real-life story of a newspaper team called the Spotlight Team, who focus on one specific story. They spend all their time and efforts. They pick some story that they think is important enough to run with and they go all at it to really upend the story, to find the secrets that are being hidden, to really bring to light a story and spotlight, essentially, what people do not know about, that people need to know about. For this particular movie, it is brought to their attention of some issues going on within the Catholic Church and priests that have unfortunately been abusing their power and their trust with their community, with the especially young children, and have been doing things that are disgusting, horrific, vile, foul. And when they do this, the powers that be in the church cover it up. They hide away the priests that have committed the affront, the atrocities. They put them away to to help them recover, to become less sick, And the children that are affected by this controversy are just pushed to the side. They get no justice. They get no reconciliation for what's going on. And what's horrifying about the story is how much of it is going on 
across the world. This spotlight team led by Michael Keaton, and you've also got Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Liev Schreiber, John Slattery, Stanley Tucci is also helping from the side. They discovered that this has been going on for years, that it's hundreds and hundreds of priests, that it's a serious problem that's been out there for quite some time, and nobody knows about it. Either the people not involved with the church don't know what's going on, or people are involved with the church, and they are doing everything in their power to keep this information secret. The more they go on their investigation, the more they learn, the more they struggle to get that information out there, whether it's resistance from the church, efforts to keep everybody quiet, no witnesses that want to come forward, or real-life events that push their story to the side. An important part about this movie is that while they were learning all this happened, September 11 happened, which, of course, news articles everywhere were like, okay, nothing else matters at this point except this thing that happened. It's a powerful film. Some might say, oh, it's boring. It's just a lot of people talking and typing on computers and having interviews with people and and walking around and discussing. But as I've said before in my love of the film 12 Angry Men, I love a good talking film if A, the dialogue is good, and B, the topic that's being discussed is good. This topic isn't good. This topic is terrible, but it's a topic that needs to be addressed. There's a lot of subtle, powerful performances in here. Mark Ruffalo seems while he's in this movie to just be after the story and just trying to get it out there for everybody. But there's a point in the movie where there's a switch and you can tell that the things he's been learning have had a severely powerful effect on him in such a way that he's desperate to get the story out regardless of how it's going to affect his career, how it's going to affect his relationships with other people. There's a lot of shock value to this movie as well because you you cannot believe that this type of atrocity, this slander has been going on for so long and so many people know about it and are just keeping it quiet on the hush-hush because they don't want to upset anybody, they don't want to cause unnecessary grief, all sorts of terrible reasoning behind why people have not said what they need to say. It's not a movie that ends in a triumphantly sort of way apart from breaking the story. Nobody ends this movie going, well, we've fixed the problem at hand. The problem has not been fixed and I'm pretty sure it is still a huge issue that's going on to this day. But... For me, personally, I did not know nearly enough about this as I should. I had heard stories, I'd heard rumors about this issue in the church, but actually seeing the effect, the large-scale scope of it on the big screen and the effects to hide it and to pretend it's not happening was shocking to me. I left the movie theater horrified and interested to try and learn more to see if there's been any more progress to put this shit down and wary as well. It's really opened my eyes about that sort of thing so yeah spotlight not a huge action-packed film not a film that's going to blow your socks off with incredible cgi it's just a powerful acting film with great actors a real life topic that is horrifying but something we need to know about and incredible powerful speeches and dialogue which really grips you absolutely spotlight powerful horrifying great film number eight coming in at number seven moving into a more lighter topic than what we just discussed an action film we have got mission impossible rogue nation now i love the mission impossible movies on the back end of this most recent franchise i was a bit indifferent when the first films came out didn't do fine they were good tom cruise action films but they didn't grip me as much as other action pieces film And then from 2011, when Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol came out and completely flipped 
the engagement and the excitement and the intrigue that I had with this franchise, namely because it started setting up Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt as a solid, unstoppable action hero who can do anything, but also giving him a family, a sense of a a group, a team that stick by him. And Rogue Nation really took that and ran with it in a way where I've had arguments with people over and over again about whether Ghost Protocol is better than Rogue Nation or Rogue Nation is better than Ghost Protocol. I think on a logistical standpoint, Ghost Protocol is a better film, but I personally like Rogue Nation more. And I think it's because of what was established in Ghost Protocol that really gives me the love of Rogue Nation. Basically, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt, he's IMF's best mission person, mission person, He's unstoppable, he's taken down the bad guys, but then he learns of an anti-IMF, a rogue nation of special agents or people with special skills that are doing the exact opposite of him. They're out to cause terror and insight. Nobody believes this is real, he's trying to bring it to the surface, but he can't get enough information to confirm it or get any resources. So he goes with his team, his team stick by his side to... to unearth the rogue nation, find who's behind it. Of course, he learns along the way there's some personal connections there. Somehow, Ethan Hunt is always involved personally in a lot of things that's going on with terrorism in the world. And what follows is a great action film, which before Mission Impossible, before that came out a couple years later, topped everything that Tom Cruise has done tenfold. There's a scene in the film where he has to dive into water and open another door, and he holds his breath the whole time he's doing it. It's Incredible that he did that in real life, but also it's very claustrophobic because they've got a heartbeat going on that starts beating faster and faster when he's been out in the water for so long and you start to feel uncomfortable and you feel short of breath because you know that you couldn't do it yourself. Don't ever try to do what some people do when they watch someone dive underwater and hold their breath to see if you can hold their breath as long as you could. If you try it with Rogue Nation, you will die. Tom Cruise is great as Ethan Hunt. He's a great action hero. But also the team that he's got is just such a lovable team. Simon Pegg is Benji Dunn, who's just his his sidekick, best friend sort of person who always sticks by him. His relationship with Tom Cruise is great. It adds the comedic information that we need in these films, but also proves that Benji can be a great agent when he needs to be. Simon Pegg shows he can be an action hero when he wants to be. And it continues to establish that team of agents that stick by Tom Cruise from previously in Ghost Protocol and continues on with Fallout. You've got Ving Rhames, Rebecca Ferguson, Jeremy Renner, Alec Baldwin, all great stuff. It's a fun action film. It's great. It blows your socks off. Exact opposite of what I said you won't find in Spotlight. But it's great action fun. It's, it's something that you need if you're just looking for a, a nice getaway film. I personally can't wait for more Mission Impossible films. They just keep getting bigger and more exciting. And there's also story. There's also plot. It's not just action for the sake of action. There's always a big, exciting mystery at play with great characters that is worth getting into. So yeah, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, number seven. Moving on to number six is a very interesting little film, which I guarantee most people don't know about. It's called Ex Machina. Ex Machina was only brought to my attention by a friend who told me that this movie existed and it's one of the greatest movies ever. And naturally I went, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll check it out at some point. But eventually I took the time to go find this movie, I bought it, I sat down, I put it in, and I was absolutely engrossed in what was in front of me. If you're unfamiliar, Ex Machina is a very simple story of Oscar Isaac, who invites another man, Domhnall Gleeson, 
to come to his little estate hidden away in the mountains because he has built a humanoid android played by Alicia Vikander. And basically what he wants Domhnall Gleeson to do is to, apparently it's called the Turing test, which is to see if the android has able to prove that it can produce and receive knowledge and personality to make it indistinguishable from a human to a point where you could not tell if it was a robot or not. I mean, basically it looks like a robot, but in terms of the way it speaks to you, the way it responds to questions, the way it raises its own questions, can it prove that if you didn't know it was a robot that you couldn't pick it just from the way they were talking and having conversation with you? A lot of the movie is either Domhnall Gleeson sitting with Alicia Vikander and having discussions or him engaging with Oscar Isaac. And it's a very psychological thriller sort of film because everything about this film makes you feel uneasy. From the moment he arrives, nothing feels quite right. It seems simple enough. Everybody seems to have their intentions on the forefront, but you know that there's things at play with Oscar Isaac and Alicia Vikander that you just you don't, don't know what the ultimate purpose here. Is Oscar Isaac just wanting to prove his android is capable of being a human? Or is he after something more? What's with the other characters in his estate? Why do they sort of behave certain ways? Why is he really nice and friendly one minute and then very scary the next? Whereas on the plus where you've got this unreliable human who you can't tell what's going on in his head, Alicia Vikander is very, very engracing with the things she says, the discussions she has with Domhnall Gleeson. You think she's absolutely a human. She's passed the test completely. But then she'll fail certain tasks. She'll put questions which seem completely above Domhnall Gleeson's head. And even then, once he leaves the room, her attitude, her personality seems to change depending on whether he's paying attention to her, whether she's by herself. It keeps you guessing right to the end of the film. You don't know who's telling the truth and who's lying. Even Domhnall Gleeson spending as much time with these characters as he does about halfway through the film, his stuff, his personality seems to shift as well. You don't exactly know what his main intention is. Does he just want to prove the android is human as well? Or is he seeing something more there? Has he got his own plans in store? I don't want to say too much more about it because it's not a long film, but it's full of twists and turns. So if I give away too much, if you're going to watch this film for the first time, you might go, ah, this is the thing Splice and Later talked about and I've caught it, so now I won't have the same impact. It's a bit of both in terms of the things I've just said are great to me. It's got a lot of spotlight in terms of dialogue and conversations and great character development. And then it's got a lot of sci-fi like Star Wars stuff, which the android development, the, the spookiness of it all, the thriller, there's a lot in here from a lot of different angles, which combine together to make just such a wonderfully intriguing, engaging film. It's not for everybody. It's certainly for me, and I think more people do need to know about this film. So if you're intrigued, if you've never heard of it, check out Ex Machina. If you have, then hopefully you will agree with me that it deserves to be on this list at number six. Coming in at number five is a movie called Southpaw. There are two things I really love. The first is boxing films. I really enjoy boxing films, especially really hamped up by the Rocky films. I love a good Cinderella story of the boxer coming in and and winning, I sometimes feel like maybe I could be a boxer, but then I immediately remember that I am not strong at all. I'm weed, and I would be completely obliterated in boxing. But it's nice to dream that maybe I could go the distance like a lot of these boxing champs do in these films. The other thing I really love 
is Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal is a tremendous actor and everything that he chooses to be in, he gives like 150%. I've never seen a movie where he stars in it where I have not been blown away by his performance, whether it's a cop in Prisoners, the villain Mysterio in Spider-Man Far From Home, a creepy cameraman in Nightcrawler. He just, he has incredible range and it's always fun to watch him in it. So it's great that he's decided to do one of my favorite genres, which is boxing films. Southpaw is more of a reverse Rocky, however, because it starts off with Jake Gyllenhaal's character on top of the world. He's got everything. He's already gone the distance. He's a successful boxer. He's got his wife. He's got his money. He's got his fame. Everything is going well for him. But then one isolated, terrible incident starts a chain reaction of events that completely end up destroying his life. He tumbles and tumbles and tumbles. He embraces alcoholism. He starts to lose his family, the respect of his friends, his fame, his money. It's all going away. But then it goes the root of what I love about boxing films, where there's a certain point where he does realize that he's hitting rock bottom. If he doesn't do something, he's going to lose it all. Mainly, he focuses more on losing his family than his fame and his money. But it's all there. It's all there to regain. He starts to throw off a lot of the terrible stuff that caused him to lose control of his life. Bad friends, bad employers, anything like that. He embraces Forrest Whitaker as a manager. He gets back to the roots of boxing back when he was doing it, not to be famous and have the money, but just because it was a sport that made him feel happy. And then eventually he slowly starts to crawl his way back up. And the movie doesn't imply that he's going to crawl his way back up to the very top, but just up into a point where he can be happy with himself, where he can look in the mirror and likes what he sees. It's a very brutal, powerful film. Jake Gyllenhaal gives an incredible performance. It's not a film that's going to be like, da-da-da-da, like Rocky does, where he just soars to the top and punches his way through. The punches in this film are violent and hard to watch. There's a lot of blood and broken eyes and... and broken noses and everything like that but it's an incredible character journey Jake Gyllenhaal kills it if you like boxing films like I do and the the rise of the underdog it's got everything there for you Southpaw is fantastic and I would at any other day put it at number two number three number four that's how interchangeable the next four films are going to be but Southpaw is just an incredible story of overcoming personal demons rising from the dead Going the distance. Fantastic movie. I love it. Number five. Sticking with the boxing films and possibly surprising people who know me and my love for this film. But at number four, we have Creed. Creed is a great film that really overcame the odds that were against it. Because when it was first announced that Creed was going to be a spin-off of the Rocky franchise, which let's be fair... Rocky is a great character and most of his films are fun to watch, but he has had a not consistent level of quality when it comes to his films. His first couple films, great stuff. Then it wobbles about in three and four, depending on what it is about Rocky that you like, before finally with Rocky V sort of leaving you on a very depressed, uninspired note, and then slightly picking it up with Rocky Balboa and his message of the one last boxing fight before he throws it in because he's getting too old. And Rocky Balboa, though, had a certain level of finality to it. And when we were told that, oh, though, Rocky's going to be back, though, but he's going to train the son of Apollo Creed, who was his first opponent in the original Rocky film, you would be forgiven for going like, okay, whatever. But in a shocking turn of events, Creed was an incredible film with incredible performances and really reminded you of what it was like when these Rocky films 
were great character dramas. It wasn't about the boxing and overcoming a super-powered enemy. It was about the personal struggles of the people involved. That's why the first Rocky is so good. Rocky 1 is not about him getting into the ring and going 15 rounds with Apollo Creed and beating the shit out of him. Rocky 1 is the story of Rocky Balboa learning to accept who he is as a person and overcoming his personal demons and believing in himself and knowing he doesn't have to win to be satisfied with the experience. He just needs to to go the distance, which he does. It's only later Rocky films where it becomes about him having to win at all costs. And that's what happens in Creed. Apollo Creed's son Adonis is this conflicted young man who wants to follow in his father's footsteps, but he's not really succeeding very well. He's full of anger, his resentment towards his father. And then he comes across Rocky, who's managing his little restaurant, and he wants Rocky to train him, but Rocky doesn't really want to train him. He doesn't want to get involved in that sort of life anymore. He just wants to live peacefully. And then eventually these two form this really strong bond. They learn to appreciate each other as individuals and what they've both been through. Adonis has points that Rocky can relate to. Rocky has points that Adonis can relate to. And then, of course, in this sort of film, though, Creed gets pulled into a situation where his name starts cashing checks, which he's not really prepared to make. The champ hears that there's a Creed out there, and he's like, if I beat the son of Apollo Creed, that's going to look great for TV. I don't expect him to win at all or even put up much of a fight, but it's going to fill seats. So bring him on. Let's do it. Very reminiscent of the original Rocky film as well. Michael B. Jordan is incredible as Adonis Creed. His his sincerity, his performance, the controlled anger that he's got. Sylvester Stallone gives a lovely, subtle performance as Rocky. He doesn't overshadow Michael B. Jordan. This is his film. Rocky is just a supporting player. He's just his trainer. He's got his own issues going on, but it's not, oh, look, it's Rocky. He's the star of our show in any way. And then Tessa Thompson is in here as well as Adonis's love interest, and she's really great as well. It was the first time I saw her in the movies, and she really put on this powerful performance of this person who loves music but is going deaf. And that sucks if you love music but you can't hear it anymore. And she really becomes a foil to Creed's anger and allowing him to just live life while he can, not focus so much on things he can't control. But of course, we have our good Cinderella story, our, our journey of training, our montages, and then Creed gets into the ring and he has his boxing match. Whether he wins or loses is not important. But what's important, as with the original Rocky, is that he accepts himself as a person. Creed really overcame a lot of odds. To After it came out, people were like, oh, Creed's a great film, everybody should go see that. But no one really gave it a chance when it first hit the cinemas. I was there. I saw it. I immediately ran out and told anybody I could that this was a great boxing, great Cinderella, great Rocky film, great character film. Suffice it to say, Creed's great. I love Creed 2 even more, as we already discussed in our top films of 2018. But Creed holds steady at number four. At number three, when you know action's good, it's good. And this action film is just nonstop fantastic entertainment from start to finish it's mad max fury road mad max fury road i hadn't seen any of the mad maxes when i saw this i was aware of mad max as a concept of max rockatansky who lives in this apocalyptic world with uh, crazy people wearing leather suits and gimp outfits driving around in their super fast cars desperate for petrol petrol 
is the most important thing to get through all the apocalyptic deserts out in the Australian outback. And Max is nuts. He's insane. He's lost his family. doesn't care about anybody but himself. Every now and then, though, he gets pulled into a situation which requires him to help others. And you never know if he's really going to do it, if he's doing it because he actually has a heart, or if he's just out in it for the petrol that he can acquire from the situation. That's what I've learned after getting into the Mad Max franchise. But the only reason I saw Mad Max Fury Road was because it was all over word of mouth and advertising was saying it was the greatest action film of all time. And I said, I'll be the judge of that. I went and saw it. Yeah, Mad Max Fury Road might be the greatest action film of all time. It is nonstop from start to finish. The cars are ziven all over the place. The, the wild, wacky characters that are introduced in this world are mesmerizing to behold. But what's great about the film is not really Max. What's great about the film is Charlie's Theron as Furiosa. She is this renegade driver who's taken a bunch of, of women who have been held as wives and slave labor for this really gross guy who's leading this cult out in the desert and she's running an escape. She's going down the Fury Road and she's taken them away from him to get out and find somewhere peaceful away from him. And he, of course, leads his, his legion of crazy characters to go and reclaim them. And Max is just caught up in the middle. He's just captured by them one day. He's strung up in front of a car during the chase. And then eventually he ends up stuck with Furiosa. And eventually they start to work together to get out of the situation. There's not too much story here. It's just a simple get from point A to point B and back again. But the character of Furiosa herself is a true highlight and standpoint. Max himself is a foil to her. It's her decision's her leadership. He provides some sage advice. Every now and then he pulls off an action spectacle and saves a lot of people. But Max, played by Tom Hardy, is still great. He plays Max in a very calm, restrained sort of way. He doesn't speak too much. He isn't hogging the camera. There's a lot of subtlety about his performance. When he's leaning into the mad side of his Mad Max personality, it's a little terrifying. But there's also a lot of sadness to him, which you get, obviously, from the tragedies that he's suffered in his life. But putting all that aside, these little character moments are very few in between just constant nonstop action, which is just entertaining to watch. You will have a big grin on your face the whole time you watch it. You cannot stop having a good time with the explosions, the guys playing air guitar with fire shooting out of the end, people jumping from cars that are flipping in the air. It's incredible stuff. It's great. It doesn't need any more after this. I think Mad Max has reached its pinnacle with Fury Road. But what's great about it is that you don't have to watch any other Mad Max films. I didn't before I watched it, and you will still have an absolutely fantastic time with it. It's fun, it's non-stop, action-packed, great stuff with really interesting characters mixed in the middle there. Definitely fantastic stuff. I cannot stop re-watching this film. It gives me a big stupid grin every single time I watch it, and it deserves to be at number three. Coming in at number two is a very special film that I hold quite close to my heart because of the fun, unexpected fun that I had with it and the interesting lessons I learned watching it. It's called Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton is one of those films which I was told I should go and see and I went to see, but I had no idea what it was about. I'm very unfamiliar with NWA or any of that music. All I knew was that Ice Cube is an actor that is in a couple of films that I've seen and he's often very angry. But I had no idea where NWA came from. I had no idea about the music behind it. I had no idea about the people involved or anything that was going on there. 
And what followed was a very, very interesting biopic that revealed to me who these characters were, where they came from, the sorts of hardships they had to overcome, and the music that inspired them to tell people the sort of terrible, horrible, racist stuff that was that was going on that they had to deal with. It's interesting because I love the music now. I don't know. I feel like I've heard the music before I'd seen the film, but there's a difference between hearing a song offhandedly and being like, that sounds okay. And then hearing about what inspired that song, the turmoil, the rage, the power that really went into the lyrics of the music you're hearing. And then you go and listen to it again. And it it means something very different to you, which is very interesting to behold. Our main characters, obviously, in real life, the, the three front runners of NWA are Dr. Dre, Easy E, and Ice Cube. The actors playing them really kill it. They bring a lot of power and sensitivity and interesting conflicts. These guys were their worst, were own worst enemies as well, which is very interesting about this film. Obviously, it's it's biased. It's told more in the pro for NWA than the con. And I'm sure there can be argued that there are cons and pros across all sides. But obviously, this is very much their story. But they're not afraid to show how insecurities, uh, anger management, paranoia, everything like that really affected their relationship as well while they were in NWA. They never say, I was perfect. I didn't make mistakes. I didn't do things, which I look back on and go, yeah, I went too far there. Everybody has their moment where you think of them in a positive way. And then they do some stuff and you go, wow, you've gone, you've gone way too far there. That's interesting to see that that's portrayed there, which is great. Fun fact, O'Shea Jackson Jr., Ice Cube's son, plays Ice Cube, young Ice Cube, and he looks the part completely. It's hard to tell that he's not just Ice Cube time-traveled. I really enjoyed Jason Mitchell as Easy e Easy e might have been my favorite character in the film, and obviously in real life, Easy e has the more tragic story. But it's a fun film for sure. There's a lot of humor in there as well. There's plenty of music sprinkled in. If you're a fan of NWA, you're going to get a kick out of it. If you're unfamiliar, but you can allow yourself to appreciate the music, it's great. What makes it number two for me is that it's a very powerful story that I knew nothing about. I got to sit down for two and a half hours and learn. And it's nice to learn in an entertaining way. This is why I like history films if they're shot in an interesting, intriguing way. I learned so much in two and a half hours that now I do feel like I have a general concept of the band. I wouldn't begin to say that I'm an advocate of theirs or a huge follower or I can know the lyrics to all their music or anything like that. Not at all. But I'm way more familiar with these these people, the things they went through, the, the atrocities they endured, racism, police brutality, and then the music that they provided and then going on tour and then how they splintered and went off did their own things and the anger behind all of that, all the decisions they made. It was a lot to take in, but it was very well done. Everybody performed spectacularly. I was moved in so many different ways. And then to learn afterwards that this is just something that people should really just know about, and I didn't, was a huge wake-up call for me to be more aware of my surrounding and what's going on. And I think just generally the entertainment that I have with it, the respect I have for it and for the people involved, the things I learned, I have to give Straight Outta Compton number two. Great music, great acting, great information, great biopic, great history, number two. 
Before we jump right into number one, again, as a staple of splicing later, we're going to do our honorable missions. We're going to fly through them because this episode's running long, but I refuse to not do them. So here we go. Furious 7, the seventh installment of the Fast and Furious franchise with a very powerful action and story, especially involving Paul Walker's death. They really handled that beautifully. Avengers Age of Ultron. Marvel didn't quite make the top 10 list, but Avengers, regardless of the quality of this particular film, seeing all my favorite characters together on a mission together, always a great time. Sicario. A lot of people hold Sicario in higher standard than I. I think it's great. As I said, I love Denis Villeneuve as a director, but unfortunately it doesn't quite top the list, unlike other Denis Villeneuve films. But it's great. Powerful acting involved. Everybody in it kills it. Jurassic World, again, there would have been a time when Jurassic World would have been on the top 10 list if not for these surprises along the way. I love the dinosaurs wreaking havoc in Jurassic World, great time. Everest, a really gut-punching film, really will either make you want to climb Mount Everest or never climb above sea level ever again, but important film that needs to be seen for sure. The Man from Uncle, I love Guy Ritchie films as I've said before. Henry Cavill and Army Hammer, based on this old TV show, is a lot of fun to watch. The Intern. I love The Intern. It's this lovely, sweet little film where Robert De Niro becomes an intern for Anne Hathaway. Lots of comedy. Great stuff. Bridge of Spies. For a long time, Bridge of Spies fought its way onto my top 10. On a, Its rewatchability hasn't held up for me as I researched what I was going to do for this list, but... Tom Hanks is great in this film about negotiation, negotiating one spy for another. And Mark Rylance gives a spectacular supporting performance as the spy involved in the negotiation. It's a great film and you should definitely see it. Spectre, James Bond, not quite as strong as other James Bond films, but Daniel Craig is great as Bond as always. Christoph Waltz was a great villain and it was good to see a lot of what had been set up in previous Bond films come together for a powerful point in this film. The Hateful Eight. Another Quentin Tarantino film. I love Quentin Tarantino films. It's filled with what I said before. A lot of great conversations and dialogue and well-rounded characters. And The Revenant. Leonardo DiCaprio, alone in the wilderness, savaged by a bear, has to survive on a mission for revenge against the person who wronged him. It's gritty. It's raw. It's rough to watch. DiCaprio gives a great performance. Great stuff. I mean, look at that. The praise I just gave to those honorable mentions. It was extremely hard to narrow it down to top 10 Most of those films could have been on the top 10 if I'd been so inclined on one particular day to put them up there. But regardless of all this fighting, I think my number one will always be my number one. I can say that they're interchangeable, but I've never not moved it off the number one spot. It really holds true for me. Number one for 2015 is The Martian. The Martian is this lovely, lovely little film. It stars Matt Damon as Mark Watney. He's on Mars with a space team. They have to leave the planet very suddenly, but oh no, Matt Damon gets left behind. And he's stuck on Mars, one of the, like an inhospitable planet. Humans aren't supposed to live on Mars. How's he going to survive? He's probably going to die. Well, no, he buckles down. He uses his mind. He uses his wits. He uses the devices and supplies left behind for him to survive up there for many, many months. Meanwhile, everybody else, once they realize, oh shit, We left him behind, but he's alive. Got to go back and get him. The Martian stands out. Now, there's a book that uh, that this movie is based on. Depending on who you talk to, either you really like the book or you find it boring. Irrelevant to the movie. The movie itself is a fun, intriguing thing that basically stands as tall as it does because of Matt Damon's performance. You'd think in a movie like this, the main character would give in to despair. It would be a lot of drama and him weeping and 
reflecting on his life and all that stuff. None of that. None of that at all. There's like a two-second window where he goes, I guess I'm going to die. But then he goes, or I could just get on with it and see what I can do to stay alive. Why not? Let's see if I can live. And what follows is him just going about his business, bear grillsing the shit out of everything, trying to keep himself going on this planet. And he does it with a spring in his step, a smile on his face, a song in his heart. He's so likable and charming and not worried. He makes jokes along the way. He has his little video documentary where he, he tells whoever's listening what he's doing. And he's never like, bullshit, this sucks. I can't believe I'm on Mars. He's like, well, this is weird. But hey, look what I did today. Isn't that great? Aside from that, you've got a great ensemble of supporting characters who are all working hard to bring him home. That's another great thing about this film. They don't waste time going, oh, should we go back and get him? Should we find a way to bring him home? Should we not tell the public? That's irrelevant. Everybody, Jeff Daniels, Sean Bean, Jessica Chastain, Donald Glover, everybody goes, ah, shit, all right. We go, go get him. How are we going to do it? Let's have a think. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's reach out to our friends in China. Let's uh, talk with the university here. Let's let's start let's start spitballing ideas. Let's see what we can do. So there's none of that depressing, antagonistic. Oh, I don't know if we should do it. It's just let's go get our friend. This is a film that takes a very bleak, horrible prospect and turns it into a fun little adventure film with tons of comedy and likable moments in here. It is a fun watch. You'll be smiling. The whole time you watch the film, you smile. And by the end of it, you love Matt Damon's character so much that you absolutely want him to get home. And when the final adventure plan is to get him off Mars is going, you'll be sitting there biting your nails, anxious on the edge of your seat, wondering if he's going to succeed. But in the middle of all that, it's just fun to see what he does. It's interesting to see how everybody else does to get him back. You'll laugh. You'll snigger. You'll be impressed. And it's impressive, the location of Mars itself looks like Mars. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's all just shot in the desert somewhere or CGI, but it feels like Matt Damon is on Mars. And if it feels like it's supposed to feel, then it's top-notch. I love The Martian. I'll rewatch it as often as I can. Regardless of how much I love all the movies on here, I think The Martian stands strong at number one. The best film of 2015, in my opinion. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed. Very long episode today, so we're going to wrap it up quickly. I hope you liked it. These countdowns are fun. They get longer every time. It's almost like I can't stop talking. But suffice it to say, next week we'll probably scale it back a bit. We'll do something simple. There's a TV show I've been watching recently, which I'd like to just discuss how much I'm absolutely loving it. But that, of course, will be a next week thing. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this list. What are your favorite films of 2015? Have a think. Look over the lists see what's great. Hopefully you agreed with my list. If there's things on here that you haven't seen, check them out. If there's things that you don't think should be on the list, sorry to hear that, make your own list. I'm sure we'll go through the same issues when I make another top 10 in probably just a few weeks time. Thank you all for listening. I love and appreciate you. Until next time, you've been spliced in later. Adios muchachos. I'll catch you next time.